North Korea fires two more ballistic missiles toward South Korea as the U.S. warns the North against the use of nuclear weapons. It's Friday, October 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Elon Musk fires some top leaders at Twitter after officially taking over ownership of the social media site. The long-term potential for Twitter, in my view, is the order of magnitude greater than its car value. Also this hour, dozens of Harvard students head to Washington to support affirmative action ahead of a Supreme Court hearing on the issue. Often college students aren't willing to sacrifice as much to go on an eight-hour bus ride down to D.C. to go protest. And the urban-rural divide that could swing this weekend's election in Brazil. In sports, the Bruins win again, and the World Series begins tonight in Houston. Mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Billionaire Elon Musk has made it official. He now owns Twitter. After months of legal challenges, the $44 billion deal has been finalized, giving Musk total control of the social media platform. Musk has pledged to make sweeping changes to the site, and he started on Thursday by laying off a number of the company's top executives. Former Twitter employee Claire Diaz-Ortiz says Musk doesn't believe in guardrails when it comes to content moderation. I think we have the endless proof that without guardrails on a platform like like Twitter or really anywhere on social media, you end up with hate, misogyny, conspiracy theories. Um, and that's not positive for anyone. That's not that's not Twitter for good. At the same time, Musk has tried to reassure advertisers that he doesn't want the site to be a, quote, free for all hellscape and that Twitter should be the most respected advertising platform in the world. The U.N. nuclear watchdog is sending inspectors back to Ukraine in hopes of dispelling Russia's claims that Ukraine is producing radiation-dispersing dirty bombs. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, says his inspectors won't start running around hysterically to every site in Ukraine, but will visit two places where Russia claims there's clandestine work going on. The allegations have been made. Inspections are on the way. He says he expects his team will be able to do this quickly, adding he's grateful that Ukraine agreed to the inspections in a bid to dispel any doubts. Grossi says he also told the U.N. Security Council that he's still trying to get a demilitarized zone around a nuclear facility that Russia controls in Ukraine. Progress, he says, has been too slow. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. This year's flu vaccine appears to be doing a good job of protecting people against the most severe complications of the flu so far. NPR's Rob Stein reports that's according for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC says people who got their flu shots in Chile during that country's winter this year were about half as likely to end up in the hospital as those who weren't vaccinated. The same strain of flu virus that was dominant in Chile is also being detected in this country. That indicates the vaccines will be a good match here, too, and bodes well for the vaccines working well in the U.S. as well. Public health experts are worried this year could be a bad flu season and that the country could get hit by a triple-demic, the flu, another respiratory virus already straining some hospitals called RSV, and yet another possible winter COVID surge. Rob Stein, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. 
in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A 16-year-old girl from Raynham reported missing earlier this month has been found safe in New York City. Colleen Weaver was reported missing after she left her home on the morning of October 18th. Her disappearance prompted an investigation that spread out across the region. There was a vigil in her honor in Raynham last night. Police say she was found last night with the help of local police and the FBI. The town administrator in Kingston wants to know if the state will reimburse his town for the services it's providing to the people the state is housing in a local hotel. More than 100 people, most immigrants and many children, were moved into the hotel this week. Town administrator Keith Hickey says Kingston has already provided some health care services to the group, but that's not the expense he's most worried about. Those costs are pretty incidental. It's the, it's the costs that the school department may have to incur to mitigate the, the, the language challenges that are of most concern to me. Hickey says most of the kids at the hotel do not speak English. He anticipates the town would have to hire new teachers to accommodate them. Leaders in Salem are expecting big crowds this weekend for the final few days before Halloween. They're asking people to take the commuter rail or ferry into town. WBUR's Dave Faniff spoke with a Salem business owner about what the influx of visitors has meant for her. Beth Crowley is the owner of Witch City Walking Tours. She says she has only one open spot in the two dozen tours she'll run over the weekend. Crowley says this is the first year that Salem has banned traffic every weekend in October. And she says the city needs to improve infrastructure going forward. We're seeing 100,000 people on a weekend. I know there's been complaints about lack of restrooms. That is something that they absolutely need to work on. More shuttle services. Maybe instead of having three satellite lots, which now fill up, they need to have six satellite lots. So there's all kinds Mm -hmm. of things that can be done. Crowley says the key to visiting Salem is to get reservations. It is not possible to just pop into the city and wing it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The town of Hardwick is not moving forward with the construction of a thoroughbred horse racing track. Selectmen unanimously voted the proposal down last night. They tell the Telegram and Gazette the prospect of having horse racing in town has divided the community. The vote leaves Plain Ridge Park Casino in Plainville as the only live horse racing venue in the state. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. The Bruins beat the Detroit Red Wings 5-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. Also tonight, the Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mostly sunny today with a high in the mid-50s. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and in the upper 50s. Sunny again on Sunday and in the 60s. It might rain for trick-or-treating on Monday. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include FINRA seeking arbitrators who can give back to their communities by lending their professional knowledge and expertise to help resolve disputes. Learn more at finra.org slash become an arbitrator. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Elon Musk says he doesn't want Twitter to become a free-for-all hellscape, which I suppose is a good starting point. An intriguing statement because Musk previously said he was a free speech absolutist. But now as he takes ownership of Twitter, his first move was to reassure advertisers that the site should be warm and welcoming for people. Hard to say what the billionaire may do with the social media site, which most people do not use, but which has a huge influence over news coverage. His very first move was to fire top executives, including the CEO. We've got NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon with us this morning. Hey, Raquel. Good morning. So his first move, uh, Elon Musk started out by clearing out the C-suite, huh? Yeah, he started with firing Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, along with its chief financial officer and top lawyer. Also, the head of public policy, Vijagadi, was dismissed. She called the shots on suspending Twitter accounts and has been criticized for that and called Twitter's chief censor. Elon Musk is showing that after all the flip-flopping and legal drama, it's his company now and he's going to run it his way. Of course, he tweeted about it on his Twitter bio page. He has renamed himself Chief Twit. Then he referenced the company's bird logo last night. The bird has been freed. Okay. Um, So Twitter has struggled financially. We should just say this. It's not nearly as big as Facebook or it's not growing like TikTok is. This is obviously a priority for him. What's his plan? Yeah, it's not consistently profitable, but Musk says he can turn it around by slimming down the workforce. So Twitter employees are worried about layoffs and that the site will change for the worse, in their opinion. Musk is planning to hold an all-staff meeting today, so we could learn more after that. Meanwhile, he sent out this message to advertisers on Twitter yesterday, right? What did we learn from that? Well, I think it's telling that his most substantial comments in months were not to Twitter users or staff, Mm. but to its advertisers. He wrote that he's buying Twitter because he wants, quote, a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner. This was in response to advertisers wondering whether Twitter is a good place to showcase their brands going forward. Big brands don't want their carefully crafted ad campaigns to show up next to posts that spew hate and vitriol. 89% of Twitter's revenue is from ads. Yeah. So Musk wrote that Twitter should be a respected advertising platform and warm and welcoming to all. But let's get down to basics, Raquel. How is Twitter going to change for the people who use Use it. He's complained that Twitter does too much content moderation. Uh, he he talks about being a free speech absolutist, as you noted, yeah. and that might not be compatible with warm and welcoming for all. He said he would reinstate former President Donald Trump's account. It was suspended after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The reaction to the deal from critics has been swift. The watchdog group Accountable Tech said Musk's erratic behavior and tweets about Ukraine and Russia make this acquisition a national security threat. It wants Congress to investigate. Look, Musk has a huge personality. He's divisive. He's also super successful in business and manufacturing. He has wrangled assembly lines at Tesla, designed rockets at SpaceX, But social media is different. Mm -hmm. Realizing his vision of Twitter could be a lot messier. Okay, we'll have to wait and see. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon, thank you. Thanks. Now let's bring in Kate Klonick, a professor who teaches Internet law and studies online speech at St. John's University in New York. Good morning. 
Good morning. Can I dwell on Musk's two seemingly contradictory statements? He wants a warm and welcoming place, but also says he is a free speech absolutist. How do you manage both things? Yeah, that's one of the kind of the craziest parts of hearing those two ideas together is that you really don't. Um, having a, a an open marketplace or an open um, uh, public forum really involves uh, being able to manage speech around the margins. And that's been true in the United States. That's true of any well-regulated speech space. And public squares, everything else, there are geographical constraints, there are time constraints, there are constraints of physicality that really effectively we are constantly monitoring and regulating ourselves. And then, of course, we ha are okay with government having limited regulation over certain types of really terrible speech. Um, so being a free speech absolutist doesn't really make sense if you want to have a well-regulated and safe space. Uh, that's one of the things that it's taken Twitter the last 15 years to find out. Do you, from these statements, conclude that Elon Musk is not really going to be a free speech absolutist because if he he needs to make some of his money back he can't afford to be? I think that that's exactly the point. Uh, there was, um, there's been a lot of talk about this and one of the main things that I have said and that I think the people who know the most have said is that it's actually just at the end of the day going to be bad for business to take um, a lot of the guardrails that have been put up to do content moderation down. Pepsi, Charmin, like whatever kind of advertisers you have, don't want their advertisements up next to hate speech. They don't want it up next to anti-Semitic speech. These are, you know, this is bad for business and it will lower the value of the platform. And so there has to be some catering to advertisers. And clearly Musk understands that because he's talking directly to advertisers. But, you know, the users have to be there too for the advertisers to want to come to the site. You know, um, I want to dwell on this a little bit, and I recognize that most people in America don't use Twitter, but it's so influential. Uh, or maybe it's just that I'm on it, that I'm curious about these things. But Musk's statement when he talked about a warm and welcoming environment, he also talked about people being able to choose the experience they have. And suddenly I had visions of maybe different Twitter channels or Twitter levels, like you can have the free speech version of Twitter, the extremist version of Twitter, or the clean family-oriented version of Twitter. Is that something you could imagine? Yeah, they've been talking about this for a while, and there's been experiment happening at Twitter around this is called the Blue Sky Project. And it's kind of the idea that you would allow people to really finely craft their, their experience. I, I will say that it is technologically difficult and so probably will create a lot of friction for the average user. Um, but there might be a series of types of filters that kind of pop out that people are able to, to put on top of their Twitter experience to change what they see, um, what they see and what they listen to every day. Of course, there are balkanization aspects to that and siloing effects in which you're just not going to have the type of diverse marketplace that you really want people to have um, and that is kind of created by having a one-stop shop um, on a lot of newsfeed, which is, you know, crafted enough as it is already. Is the intricate job of trying to promote free speech while also creating a warm and welcoming environment, is that at all compatible with Musk's apparent plans or reported plans to cut massive amounts of the workforce? Oh, that's a great question. And the answer is absolutely not. It is 
it especially headed into Brazil's election on Sunday and the U.S. midterms in just 11 days. Um, I think that the idea that you would have no one running, um, no one running the the battleship uh, at the key moments when we know um, people try to do the worst things to disrupt these platforms um, in real time and space. I think that is probably the most dangerous idea, and the all hands meeting that is predicted for today and the layoffs that are predicted for today would be devastating for that. I want to talk through that because here you're talking about something that on its face is not necessarily going to be like, you know, Nazi speech or uh, Hitler speech or something like that. It's going to be a fake story. It's going to be a lie or a distortion or something that, that is put out, that is spread on social media in the days right before election or the minutes right before people are voting. That is the thing that you're saying would take a, a very large and robust staff to catch in proper time? Yeah, and it's not just catching it in proper time. It's making sure that people are aware that what could be doubt, that putting labels onto things or create or downranking certain types of content. So, for example, if two days before the election something goes off on Twitter that people take it seriously about Fetterman's health or any of the other close races that are happening in the U.S. right now, um, that there is not enough time for basically the truth to get its boots on and to correct the record if, in fact, you know, journalists or um, it crosses platforms and goes to another major platform and goes viral in some way and can't be caught, that this gets amplified to a level and people make wrong decisions and it actually influences the outcome of the election. And so I think not being able to have any type of guardrails in place, any type of reactionary, not being able to have classifiers that are catching this information or being actively updated on Twitter's end is actually, is probably maybe the scariest part of what could potentially happen. And we don't know what's going to happen, but that is definitely the worst, one of the worst case scenarios. Is it a big deal if Donald Trump is restored to Twitter? And here's why I ask this question. As a user, I feel like Donald Trump is already back on Twitter. He's on this alternative social media site and journalists screen grab whatever he says there and they spread it on Twitter. I mean, he's still making news on social media in the same way that he was before. That's increasingly true. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that this is one of the things that we're seeing is that we're developing these new markets. And if someone is important enough, his speech will be amplified. Um, and I think that it won't be as huge a deal for Donald Trump to come back on Twitter, except that I do think that he will probably use the platform. He will, he has always used the platform on Twitter much more than he has used his, yes, um, much more than he's used his tw truth social account. And so I do think that he, he likes the adrenaline rush um, that having the millions and millions of people he can directly speak to um, and so that encourages him to say more, which is, in fact, probably more dangerous. Just about 10 seconds left. But should any company have this much power over our speech and what gets out and what doesn't? I mean, as you said before, Twitter is not that large a company. Um, Facebook is a very large company. Google is a very large company. I mean, I think this is just the nature of the world that we live in now. And the question is not should, but like, how do we best manage it? Um, not whether we put a stop to it at all. Kate Klonick, professor of law at St. John's University. Pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, the impact of guns that convert a semi-automatic firearm to an automatic with the turn of a small switch. Chicago officials say that small switch may be causing more mass shootings. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hamlin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 54. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 37. Tomorrow, clear skies and a high near 60. Sunny on Sunday with a high near 63. It's 41 degrees in Boston. And as you just heard, it'll be nice weather for the Boston Book Festival. It begins today in the Copley Square and continues tomorrow. WBUR's Tiziana Deering, Daryl C. Murphy, and Meghna Chakrabarty will be there. And it's free. Get details at WBUR.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Police in Chicago are seizing a lot more handguns equipped with auto-sears. These are illegal thimble-sized devices that turn single-shot pistols into automatic weapons. They're also known as switches. If you add a switch and also add an extended magazine that holds more bullets inside the gun, that gun can fire as many as 20 rounds per second. It becomes a little machine gun. NPR, the Chicago Sun-Times, and WBEZ have been investigating, and WBEZ's Chip Mitchell tells the story. Kimberly Saunders says her son Parnelius is still reeling. I can see it when she has me over to their apartment on Chicago's near north side to meet him and tell me what happened to him this year. She says she was out on a Thursday night in May getting a Euro sandwich nearby. She heard rapid-fire gunshots outside. It sounded like, like just automatic. I used to watch these war movies as a kid, so it sounded like one of those machine guns. She left the restaurant to see what was happening. I saw about 20 kids running across the street. You just heard kids screaming. Saunders suddenly stops her story. 
Parnelius has stood up. He's leaving the room. You all right, baby? That's all right, but you could go ahead and cry. Go to the bathroom. Okay, go ahead, baby. I love you. Can I have a hug? Hearing the retelling of that traumatic night is too much for Parnelius. Saunders hugs him and he leaves. She takes a deep breath. I saw bodies on the ground. It was three people laying there just in puddles of blood. One of them was 17-year-old Parnelius. An officer ended up coming and helped me. He was like, don't move him because we really didn't know. He had blood coming from everywhere. Whatever we saw, we put pressure on. She says the hospital told her he'd suffered nine gunshot wounds. Parnelius was among seven people wounded in that shooting who survived. Two others died. Prosecutors say the gunman fired in bursts, 21 shots in all, from a Glock pistol with an extended magazine and an automatic switch that turned the weapon into a machine gun. A WBEZ, Sun-Times, and NPR investigation has found that the number of Chicago police seizures of switch-equipped handguns has surged since 2018. So has the number of extended magazines that can add dozens of bullets to a gun's capacity. Those magazines are banned in Chicago and the surrounding county. During those same years, a larger share of the city's shootings have been mass shootings, with four or more people killed or wounded. Police Superintendent David Brown last month told reporters these trends are linked. Switches that make single-action weapons fully automatic, as well as the high-capacity uh, magazines that hold more bullets in them with an extended clip, has been really the dynamic that's changed how shootings and, and how victimization occurs. Not just here, everywhere in the country is seeing just an explosion of switches and extended high-capacity magazines. So here's how these switches work. Many handguns sold by licensed gun stores are semi-automatic. It means just one shot for every squeeze of the trigger, like this Glock pistol recorded at a gun range. An auto-seer turns a pistol into an automatic. The gun keeps firing as long as the trigger is held. Here's what that Glock model sounds like with a switch in a video from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Many of the switches seized with handguns in Chicago were made in China. Most of those were made of metal. There's a myriad of different ways you could get your hands on a, uh, an imported type switch. James Barlow heads an ATF officer training division. Order one through the mail, off of eBay, whatever. There's going to be a trail from wherever that's imported into the country that could possibly lead to the individual end user who purchased one. But, uh... We're kind of in a transition period, really, I think. Barlow says more and more switches for the U.S. market are now made domestically. Most of those are 3D printed. They're plastic. If you 3D print one, there's like zero way to trace it to you. The latest one is, in fact, one they call the InvisiSwitch. It looks pretty much identical to just a basic block slide cover plate. So if somebody was just looking at the pistol, you know, and didn't know any better, they would think it was just a semi-automatic pistol. As the presence of handguns with switches has increased in Chicago, so is their cachet in popular culture. A rapper from Chicago's South Side dropped this video. The track is called Glock with a Switch. It mainly shows a room full of young men showing off these weapons. It has more than 3 million views online. 
The federal government requires a special license to own a machine gun. That dates back to a 1934 law aimed at the Tommy guns used by Chicago gangsters like Al Capone. Under that law, the feds consider switches to be machine guns, even switches that are not attached to a weapon. The penalty for breaking that law is up to 10 years in prison. In July, Democrats in the U.S. Senate introduced a bill that would establish a national strategy against auto seers. But some gun control advocates say cracking down on the switches themselves is probably a lost cause. They say the focus should be to require manufacturers like Glock to make their pistols harder to convert to machine guns. A Glock spokesperson did not respond to questions or interview requests. Just to know that you have a gun that can cause this type of damage, it should be against the law. Kimberly Saunders is the mother whose son was shot nine times in that May incident. Those type of machinery, it should not even be able to be manufactured. You're just putting people at risk for money. Saunders says it's a miracle her son survived. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Chicago. There's more about Auto Sears and Extended Magazines at NPR.org. Now, this story's reporters also include Matt Kiefer and Charmaine Runis of WBEZ and Frank Main and Tom Shuba of the Chicago Sun-Times. Did you know this? That legendary Chicago newspaper is now part of Chicago public media. The one-time home of Mike Royko and Ann Landers, the fictional home of John Belushi when he played a newspaper columnist, that newspaper is now using its muscle to cover the city, public media style. We're glad you're joining us on your public radio station, which brings you Morning Edition. You can always find us on social media. Well, for now, who knows how this Twitter thing will turn out, but Layla is at Layla Fottle. Rachel Martin is Rachel NPR. A is A Martinez LA. And I'm NPR Inskeep. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, this weekend, current Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro faces off for a second time against former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in a critical election that pits rich against poor. It's 729. This November election, there are 435 House seats at stake, as well as 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, and countless local positions. Keep listening to WBOR and NPR for updates on what you need to know about the fast-approaching midterms. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Well in Montessori School, a Boston parents' family favorite, toddler to grade 8. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at wellin.org. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Elon Musk has completed his $44 billion purchase of Twitter ahead of today's court deadline. NPR's Shannon Bond says the billionaire has already fired some of the social media company's top executives. 
Musk has already been making major changes, firing four top executives, including CEO Parag Agrawal and finance chief Ned Siegel. He also dismissed the company's top lawyer and its head of legal and public policy. Musk has vowed to overhaul Twitter's business model, take it private, and loosen rules against harassment, abuse, and misleading claims. Musk and Twitter had been locked in a months-long legal battle after he got cold feet about going through with the deal. But just days before they were set to go to trial, Musk surprised everyone by saying he'd buy Twitter after all. Shannon Bond, NPR News. Toyota says it produced a record number of vehicles in the month of September. Output jumped 73 percent compared to the same month a year ago. Still, the automaker cautions that level of output is not sustainable in part because of ongoing chip shortages. In South Florida, residents of a 14-story condominium building in Miami Beach were ordered to evacuate yesterday after that building was determined to be structurally unsafe. It's on the same street where a 12-story condo tower partially collapsed last year, killing nearly 100 people. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. This year's election could mean big wins for women in Massachusetts. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, Democratic women are expected to do particularly well in deep blue Massachusetts. Polls suggest Maura Healey is favored to become the state's first female governor. She's running on the state's first all-female ticket with Lieutenant Governor candidate Kim Driscoll. Democratic women are favored to win five out of six constitutional offices, including attorney general, state auditor, and state treasurer. Elizabeth Warren, the state's first woman elected to the U.S. Senate 10 years ago, says it's a different world today. I got about a zillion phone calls where people said, oh, you should run. You have some great ideas. Of course, you're going to lose. At least we're not having that conversation today. Despite the progress, women represent only about a quarter of Massachusetts state legislators and are still underrepresented in local elections. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Boston City leaders are asking the public school system to take action against bullying. Reports of bullying and sexual misconduct in the school system are up more than 50 percent over the last three years. The Boston Globe reports Superintendent Mary Skipper said the increase is likely due to, quote, different reporting mechanisms. The state previously found BPS was not adequately tracking complaints of bullying. A new report examines the transatlantic slave trade and how it was used to generate enormous and lasting wealth in New England. Brian Stevenson is the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, which published the report. His hope is that people will read the report and see an opportunity. With a goal toward creating a consciousness that allows us to say never again will we tolerate the kind of racial violence and bigotry that made centuries of enslavement possible in America. The report cites Boston as a place where the legacy of slavery remains, even though the city prides itself as being part of the abolition movement. The report points out the deep economic inequality between white and black Bostonians as one part of that legacy. It's 734. WBUR supporters include Global Arts Live, presenting flamenco superstar Farrakito at the Berkeley Performance Center, one night only, November 2nd. Tickets at globalartslive.org. The Bruins have now won four straight. They beat the Detroit Red Wings 5-1 to one last night at the Garden. Tonight, the Bees will visit the Detroit Red Wings. Also tonight, the Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers. And on Sunday, the Patriots will visit the New York Jets. In your forecast, we end.
end the week today with a mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy with temperatures in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, sunny and right around 60. Sunny and low 60s on Sunday. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Brazil is getting ready for one of the closest and most contentious presidential elections in decades. This Sunday's runoff pits the incumbent, a far-right nationalist, against a famous leftist hoping for a political comeback. As NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, who you support largely depends on where you live. As you head north out of Sao Paulo, Brazil's largest city, the landscape opens up to vast fields of coffee, orange groves, and Brazil's country music, Sertanejo. Here in Brazil's largest state, Sao Paulo, the urban residents and the poor generally went for ex-president Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva while people better off tended toward current President Jair Bolsonaro, especially those in the countryside. Maria da Graça. Que ama essa gente querida, linda. Maria da Graça has been playing Sertanejo oldies at this Catholic radio station for 35 years. The 73-year-old grandmother says here in Casa Branca, with a population of about 30,000, people are all about family values. Her religious programs speak to that too, she says. She doesn't talk about politics, but gives an emphatic thumbs up when I ask her if she supports Bolsonaro. Talking politics is no problem for 33-year-old Marina Cristina Roberto, who is ringing up a sale in the small gift shop off the town's tiny central plaza. Bolsonaro has set a great example for her kids, she says. I want them to be in the military like Bolsonaro and be righteous. Casablanca went big for Bolsonaro with 60% of the vote compared to the 43% he got nationwide. Supporters shrug off his crude, misogynistic and racist comments and approve of his opposition to abortion and LGBTQ rights. Pickers grab oranges off the trees in Lionel Krauss's expansive orchard. He says Bolsonaro has boosted agriculture in the country, which now accounts for a third of Brazil's GDP. The 29-year-old general manager of the company his grandfather founded says Brazil is the largest exporter of orange juice in the world. He credits his booming sales to Bolsonaro. Isso vai muito do... Sometimes he says things that some people don't like to hear, but he speaks the truth, says Kraus, whose pickup truck has a huge sticker of Bolsonaro with his campaign's catchphrase, God, Country and Family. Such a great narrative maker. Guillerme Casarroyes is a political analyst at a private university in Sao Paulo. He says Bolsonaro's incendiary brand of politics has polarized the electorate like never before in Brazil. 
But back in the capital, Sao Paulo, you feel the tension just bringing up Bolsonaro's name. Support for Lula da Silva is strong here. He won the city of 12 million residents with nearly 48 percent of the vote, mirroring his national support. As a quiet samba tune plays, Eliuisa Carvalho works on her laptop at a cafe in the trendy Pinheiros neighborhood. She's a 42-year-old PR consultant and says Bolsonaro is destroying Brazil. And we are suffering. Please, people from USA, help us. I'm kidding, but I'm telling the truth. She says De Silva, as he did when he was president back in the early 2000s, will take care of the poor, the environment, and will save Brazil. De Silva has promised to crack down on Amazon deforestation and create a ministry for native peoples. Lula, give people hope. She says she's very nervous about election day on Sunday. Polls suggest the contest will be very close. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Sao Paulo, Brazil. As baseball fans know, the World Series starts today. The Houston Astros take on the Philadelphia Phillies. As the series starts in Houston, both teams are obviously on a roll, but there's a definite favorite. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is covering the series. Hey there, Tom. Hi, Steve. So the last time I checked in with baseball, it was clear to me that the Yankees and Dodgers were headed for a big matchup in the World Series. That's not happening? Yeah, Steve, you're only a few weeks behind, but that's okay. (laughs) Stick with it. Um, It's Houston and Philadelphia, and Houston, based on recent history, the Astros are in their fourth World Series since 2017 when they won the title, and based on right now, they are undefeated this postseason and winning games every which way. They Mm -hmm. are a red-hot team, so they should win. The Phillies, though, they're also playing well, started the postseason as a wild-card team. They're in their first World Series since 2009, so as I said, On paper, Houston, Steve, is your winner. But, Steve, here's some real sports wisdom for you. They don't play the games on paper. Well, how could the Phillies tear up the paper and win this series? Well, they're players who've been playing well. Keep it up, Uh, including three players whose contracts total more than a half a billion dollars altogether. Mm. They have been earning their crazy money. Sluggers like Bryce Harper and Kyle Schwarber have been slugging. Schwarber is built like a D-cell battery. He launches home runs called Schwar bombs, and they measure them, Steve, in terms of how far into outer space they travel. And the third player, pitcher Zach Wheeler, has been close to unhittable in the playoffs. So I should admit, I actually was following the playoffs. I did hope for the Yankees to do a little better than they did. And of course, they weren't even close. They lost all the games. What makes the Astros so good? They are complete. They have a great system that during this run since 2017 keeps replenishing and putting stellar players on the field. For instance, a breakout star this postseason, rookie Jeremy Pena, has been great defensively. He's hit three home runs, one of them against those Yankees where he rounded third base during his home run trot, spread his arms, and shrugged at his teammates as in, What can I say? Steve, that's not bad for a rookie. (laughs) I guess we should acknowledge some people hate the Astros, particularly because of that scandal a few years ago, sign stealing by Houston. But a lot of people love their manager, Dusty Baker, who is talking not only about the games, but the composition of the teams. What is he saying? 
Yeah, he commented about this yesterday. There are no U.S.-born black players on either active roster for this World Series. That's the first time that's happened since 1950, only three years after Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues. It's unfortunately been trending this way for years. Ever since youth baseball got more expensive and, and basketball and football became more popular for kids to play. Mm. Dusty Baker, a black man, said yesterday the lack of black players on the field at this series looks bad, but he thinks helps on the way. You can tell by the number of African-American number one draft choices. Academies are, are producing players. So hopefully in the near future, we won't have to talk about this anymore or even be in this situation. Hmm. Dusty Baker, manager of the Astros. They're playing the Phillies in the World Series. Tom, thanks so much. Sure thing, Steve. NPR's Tom Goldman. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a group of more than 100 Harvard students visit Washington to advocate for affirmative action at Harvard in advance of a U.S. Supreme Court hearing that will weigh whether the policy is discriminatory. And in our next hour, why both U.S. Senate candidates from Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman, have changed their positions to support fracking despite concerns that it contributes to climate change. In your forecast, a mostly sunny Friday today in the low 50s. Tonight it falls to the 30s, then sunny and low 60s both days this weekend. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. How can companies stabilize climate, protect water, and build a just and inclusive economy? Ceres Roadmap 2030 has strategies and solutions. Find them at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now in business news, the Massachusetts economy is growing at a slower pace than the rest of the country. A report from Mass Benchmarks shows that there are more jobs available in the state compared to last year. But Michael Goodman, a professor at UMass Dartmouth, says the number of people working or actively looking for work is down compared to a year ago. That speaks to the need for better workforce policies, uh, better supports for families to encourage them having children um, and uh, more supports to help make sure that uh, we're able to make better use of the people and the workers that we do have. Goodman says the state's economy has also been hard hit by rising interest rates. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments Monday over whether Harvard's admissions policy is discriminatory against Asian Americans. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, a group of Harvard students, including many Asian ethnicities, dispute that framing, and they're making their voices heard in the nation's capital. 
It's set to be a whirlwind weekend for over 100 Harvard students. So Sunday at 3 a.m., we're leaving for D.C. We have a diversity celebration in Franklin Park in the afternoon. And on Monday, we rally in front of the Supreme Court. Often college students aren't willing to sacrifice as much to, to go on an eight-hour bus ride down to D.C. to go protest. Muskan Arshad, Angie Shin, and Kylan Tatum are among those taking the trip to witness a landmark case and to defend the practice of affirmative action at a very vulnerable moment. That case was brought by Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, a group backed by the conservative legal activist Edward Bloom. Monday's oral arguments will be the culmination of a case first filed almost eight years ago. SFFA claims Harvard's race-conscious admissions policy unlawfully discriminates against Asian-American applicants. So far, Harvard has prevailed before a Massachusetts district court judge and on appeal. But the case was always destined for the Supreme Court court. I I think for me, the main purpose is about narrative change. For example, what does it mean for SFFA to claim that Asian Americans are the victims of affirmative action, but to see a significant number of representatives of Asian American student groups outside of the Supreme Court protesting that argument? Kylan Tatum is a sophomore who says that Asian Americans are not a monolithic group. Tatum, who is both black and Vietnamese, says the plaintiffs are dividing people along racial lines while ignoring a more complex reality. It creates a point of, I would say, logistical confusion when you have someone who's both black and Asian American, because then it's like, where, where do they stand on that? Like, how do you discredit them on the basis of their identity? Given the Supreme Court's strong conservative majority, many legal experts expect that when the decision comes down next year, Bloom will prevail this time, like Jonathan Feingold of the Boston University School of Law. I think it's almost a guarantee that at least five of the right-wing justices side with the plaintiffs to take off the table the right for historically white institutions to take race into account That possibility weighs on some of the students making the trek to D.C., says senior and organizer Angie Shin. There are a lot of students who personally just deep down believe like this is the Supreme Court is going to strike it down, that it is not going to be ruled as constitutional and that affirmative action will be taken away. It's going to be a lot. Harvard's racial diversity has continued to grow in the last 10 years. About 40% of its newest admitted students are white, compared to 56% a decade ago. Asian Americans now represent 28% of admitted students, up from 21% in the same time frame. Black students rose from 10 to 15% of admitted students, while Latino admissions have remained largely flat. Kylan Tatum says that affirmative action is aimed at worthy goals, fostering diversity, avoiding tokenism, and opening doors that were closed to past generations. Those goals will survive, whatever the court decides. I do think that while it might not go the exact way we want to, that we can still find different methods of doing the best we can. Call me an optimist, I suppose, and I would say I am. It would be difficult to assemble today's diverse college enrollments without considering race in admissions. But Tatum says difficult doesn't mean impossible, and that students plan to keep up the fight. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here with me to tell us what they've got for us today. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Rupa. It is always great to be at the end of the week. I know. Um, we have a serious business today. As you know, on Fridays, mm-hmm. we try to dive beneath the headlines on one of the biggest stories of the week, and this week we are focused on the string of violence that the city of Boston has been experiencing. You know, people might be where Mayor Wu, other city officials met with community leaders, pastors on Tuesday to talk about it after three shootings over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, a man was shot at a barbershop in Mm -hmm. in Dorchester. So while crime is, violent crime has been down overall, there's been this intensity lately. So our approach to diving beneath the headlines is to talk with local residents about how they're experiencing it, what they want and need. State Representative Liz uh, Miranda Born and raised in Roxbury, went to high school there, and Reverend Kevin Peterson, who's been part of the response in these community conversations. Yeah, that that barbershop was just real tragedy. I mean, that's a center of the community, a heart of the community. That's right. That's right. There. So, what do residents want to see now? All right. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. And have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. That's Radio Boston today at eleven and three. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, now through November 13th. Newton Country Day, a sacred heart school preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. And LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. When the person you really want to front your rock band says, I won't sing, well, normally that'd be the end of it, right? But the guys in dry cleaning kept asking and asking, and eventually Florence Shaw agreed to be a very different kind of rock star. If I could live across the road from a boot fair, wouldn't that be something? I can slip through the fence. That's from the new dry cleaning album, Stump Work. Lauren Shaw says drawing was her real passion before she unwittingly found herself in a band. It was always a scary thought to me, the idea of standing up in front of people and fronting something, you know, or certainly singing I'd never considered myself very good at. I was just about to turn 30 and I kind of thought like, oh... (laughs) <laughs> kind of thought opportunities like that were sort of behind me, you know. Yeah. But I was experiencing a bit of turmoil just in my personal life generally at the time. And um, I think that is really the thing that sort of pushed me to try it. Was this a relationship that had gone awry or something else was going on? Yeah, it, it kind of just um, reached the end of its life, but it was quite a major relationship. I mean, I got to say, if... If you've gone through a bad breakup and you're like 29 years old looking at 30 and someone offers you the chance to like be the lead singer in a band, <laughs> that is a great way to recover from that relationship. Yeah, it makes sense, right? It totally. made sense to me at the time. <laughs> I wish that had happened to me. This seems like a weird premise for a show, but I like it. By your own admission, this was not mm. an instrument you were familiar with. So what was it like to explore the sounds that your voice could make. Really fun. I really liked it. I think it's nice to be listened to. Mm. (laughs) I thought like, wow, you can just say anything. (laughs) 
into this thing, you know, and there's a, there's something powerful about that. I'm not shocked. It happens all the time. Just don't touch my gaming mouse. August, November month, an universal message of peace. How do you decide if you're going to actually sing? Because you did do it on this album, I think, for the, maybe the first time. Yeah. I think it's like just brings a sort of a different ingredient, kind of makes something maybe a bit sweeter. Also, to, to kind of hold people's interest, I suppose, because mm. it's, it's just nice to kind of jolt people every now and then. The lyrics themselves sort of feel random. <laughs> and... Some of them, like I'm thinking in particular about this song, No Decent Shoes for Rain, mm -hmm. which I know this is a song that actually has a lot of meaning because it came out of some loss. You could take control of my mind or body anytime. Why do I trust you? The answer is I don't and I never will. Let's eat pancake. You could take control of my mind or body anytime. Why do I trust you? The answer is I don't, and I never will. Let's eat pancake. <laughs> I mean, I dig it. That's sort of how my, <laughs> my mind is, too. There's a randomness to our thoughts. Like, we right. collect what we're in this very profound space in one second, and then all of a sudden, it's like my tummy is rumbling and I need to go, you know, eat carbohydrates. Totally. It's like silliness next to kind of things that are more profound or next to things that are frightening I find life to be like that and sort of like my my mind to be very much like that I deal with quite a bit of anxiety I sort of always have it's a thing I've been, I've been quite anxious since I was a kid mm. and I think may, maybe that sort of influenced the way I put things together a bit that scattergun thing I've seen a lot I've seen a guy cautioned by police for rollerblading. So it's good to hear that you sort of relate to it. I always feel good when people can see a bit of themselves in that because, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not, uh, <laughs> not crazy. <laughs> but some music reviewers have critiqued Florence Shaw's style, even while praising the band. One said she had, quote, flat anti-charisma. Other words kept popping up too. She mutters. She's deadpan critics said well there's always something i wonder about i think in a lot of music writing there can be a healthy dose of uh misogyny mm -hmm. <laughs> occasionally i think i think sometimes the sound of a woman can alienate some people or they find it harder to connect with it i'm always a bit surprised um that people read me as very, very deadpan. Obviously, it's a part of my style, but I think, you know, people have compared me to satellite navigation voices, you know, like... Like sort of, Siri. Um, yes, exactly, like Siri. Which is and, very um, offensive, by the way. I find that to be very <laughs> offensive. Yes, I do struggle a bit. I do struggle a bit with commentary like that. I want to close by asking about a particular song about... Gary Ashby. 
Can you tell me about Gary Ashby? <laughs> Family daughters. Are you stuck on your back? Without me? Dogs running free. I don't actually know Gary Ashby. He's a tortoise, we should say. Yes, he's a tortoise. That's true. Um, it was a lost poster that was near my mum's house. Um, I went for a walk and saw it. And it said Gary Ashby at the top. And then I think the subheading is like, have you seen Gary? And then a little picture of him. Have you seen Gary with his tinfoil ball? He used to love to kick it with his stumpy legs. I can't fill in kind of where he is now or what's going on there. Florence Shaw, she is front woman. God, I hate that word. What do we call you? Front person? Yeah, yeah. Singer? Maybe. <laughs> Vocalist. It sounds very sort of uh, conservative, doesn't it? Vocalist. I know. We need <laughs> another word. Yeah, it needs a new word. Florence Shaw of the band Dry Cleaning. Their new album is called Stumped Work. Florence, it was great to talk with you. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. No one ever believed in me until you semicircle eyes. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Elon Musk has completed his $44 billion purchase of Twitter in what may be a major shift in the world of social media. It's Friday, October 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Nebraska school board has shuttered a high school newspaper after it focused on LGBTQ issues. That was kind of saying, you know, like, we don't really want you here. Like, you can't really be yourself here. Also this hour, just decades after the first woman won a statewide race in Massachusetts, they're now favored to win all but one state constitutional office. The skepticism was, well, she's nice and she's smart enough, but is she tough enough? Nobody's raising that nowadays about these women. Plus, anti-government protests continue to grow in Iran. In sports, the Bruins win and the World Series begins mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Billionaire Elon Musk has finalized a deal to buy the social media site Twitter. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon reports Musk, who has proposed sweeping changes to the platform, has already laid off a number of the company's top executives. The billionaire CEO of Tesla and SpaceX tweeted, The bird has been freed, a reference to the company's logo. 
Musk fired CEO Parag Agrawal and the company's top lawyer and its chief financial officer. He also dismissed Vijay Gade, who was in charge of public policy and safety. She had been attacked online for calling the shots on which accounts get suspended. Musk has not yet named anyone to take their places. On the platform, some users fretted about what will become of Twitter. Others called for the platform to reinstate accounts, like former President Donald Trump's, which was suspended after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. A Texas police officer is facing calls for his resignation. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports Officer Steve McCrawl testified that his Department of Public Safety did not fail the people of Uvalde during the school shooting in August that killed 19 children and two adults. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez took to Twitter calling for Steve McCraw's resignation. The Republican who represents the border district encompassing Uvalde joined victims' families and a number of other prominent state Democrats. Roland Gutierrez, who represents the region in the state Senate, said McCraw had lied to legislators playing down his department's failures at the massacre and could no longer be trusted. Beto O'Rourke and state Democratic Party chair Gilberto Hinojosa also asked for his removal. The first DPS officer was fired over the response at Robb Elementary last week. Video showed the senior DPS officer waited more than 70 minutes to breach the room. I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. A U.N. expert is repeating his calls for an international investigation into the death of a 22-year-old Iranian woman and the violent suppression of anti-government protests that have followed. Special Rapporteur Javed Raymond told the BBC that an independent panel should go ahead without the cooperation of Iranian authorities. We know the position of the government and the authorities. They have and they will continue to deny that uh, any form of wrongdoing If the Human Rights Council sets up an independent mechanism, that body would collect information, evidence, testimonies, and then they would establish uh, forms of accountability as to what has happened. Demonstrations broke out across Iran after Masa Amini was arrested for not wearing the hijab in accordance with government standards. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The head of the T says some of the slow zones on the orange line are caused by problems found during the summertime shutdown. MBTA General Manager Steve Poptek says during that month-long shutdown, some crews found areas that needed additional work. That work has caused the slowdowns north of Boston. I believe that prioritizing safety means trusting their judgment in the field and putting slow zones in place and allowing them to get the work done. I know that it has been inconvenient for our customers. I regret that, uh, but I have also seen progress. PopTech says that some of the slow zones will remain in place through December. There is a new COVID strain on the rise in Massachusetts. Experts say it's called the BQ1 variant. That variant and its offspring are showing up more in testing. Dr. Paul Sachs from Brigham and Women's Hospital says these variants are capable of evading vaccines and medical treatments, but so far they haven't caused any more severe disease than earlier Omicron strains. We do not have a lot of people so far, you know, knocking wood, in intensive care unit for COVID-related pneumonia, which is very different from what we had, for example, in 2020 and 2021. State public health data showed the number of confirmed cases of COVID has been trending down all month. 
Massachusetts gaming officials are sticking to their plan to launch mobile and in-person sports betting separately. Boston-based DraftKings sent a letter to the Gaming Commission asking it to reconsider the decision. DraftKings, which runs betting apps, says a staggered launch would give in-person operators an advantage. Commissioners say the plan remains to have in-person betting begin in January, with online betting starting in March. There's already talk of expanding a new walking and biking trail that opened this week. The Northern Strand Trail runs 10 miles from Assembly Square in Somerville to Lynn. Jonah Chiarenza with the group Bike to the Sea says the plan is to extend the trail to Nahant Beach. It's sort of almost like a throwback. The notion you could hop on your bike, you know, throw a towel in your basket and ride your bike out to the beach. I think that's something that, whether you did it or not, sounds like a fun kind of childhood activity. Kiarenza hopes the trail can eventually be extended to also include Revere Beach. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waltham Open Studios. Tour more than 80 studios and learn about art making November 5th and 6th in four buildings on Moody Street in the heart of Waltham. Brad Marchand had two goals and an assist for the Bruins in his first game back from hip surgery. The Bees beat the Detroit Red Wings 5-1 to last night at the Garden. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. Also tonight, the Celtics host the Cleveland Cavaliers. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high in the mid-50s, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and in the upper 50s, sunny again on Sunday and in the 60s. It might rain for trick-or-treating on Monday. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. When this school year started, Northwest High School in Grand Island, Nebraska students signed up for the usual offering of elective classes, choir, band, yearbook. But if they wanted to sign up to be on the student newspaper, the Viking Saga, they were out of luck. Everyone's lost their opportunity to get to write for an amazing paper. This is Marcus Pinnell. He was a student reporter on the Viking Saga at Northwest, an award-winning school paper that had been around for 54 years. And uh, we did really good at the last state contest, too. We took home third place. Marcus graduated from Northwest High last May and is now a freshman at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, studying English. How far away is that from home? Uh, like two hours. It's not too bad. <laughs> See, that's like perfect because you can still go home yeah. and like make your parents cook for you and you're still far enough away that they can't just like pop in. Yeah, so true. You're right. Yeah, it's, it's been perfect. <laughs> Marcus's last few months at Northwest were anything but. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm queer. So, you know, originally when I started writing for the paper, I was in the closet. And, um, you know, I, I kind of kept that to myself. But as I kind of grew more comfortable with myself and with, you know, with my surroundings and everything, I, uh, I changed five letters in my name. So basically, instead of putting by Megan Pennell in my stories, I would put by Marcus Pennell. That started with the paper's March issue. And what was the reception like from your friends, from your family, from your school? You know, of course, uh, to most people, it just made sense. Like, you know, that was what I was being called in person for the most part. So it kind of just seemed like a fitting, you know, a fitting change. But um, 
then our our principal came in and he said uh the school board would not be allowing us to uh publish under any name that wasn't on our birth certificate anymore what did it feel like to be forced to then publish in the paper under your dead name right um you know it it was a big deal for me it was it was you know pretty pretty terrible <laughs> Um, I'd faced a lot of stuff from like my peers and even from a couple teachers, but this had been like the first like official kind of thing from the school that was kind of saying, you know, like, we don't really want you here. Like, you can't really be yourself here. Marcus and his classmates at the paper had already been planning to focus their last issue of the year on LGBTQ issues. There were three articles, one on the difference between sex and gender, one on the history of the gay rights movement, and an op-ed on Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. Then, of course, you know, I got a call around June from our, our sponsor uh, saying that the program had been shut down. So, The program meaning the whole newspaper, the student newspaper was being shut down. Yes. Um, the Specifically, the newspaper class would not be offered anymore as part of like the curriculum. I'm Jessica Votipka. Um, I have been the education reporter, among other things, for the Grand Island Independent. Votipka got a heads up about what was happening at the paper early in the summer in the form of a post-it note on her desk. It said it was from a parent. It was anonymous. It discussed that the newspaper had been shut down abruptly, uh, that there had been some issues with preferred names and pronouns. Eventually, she got a few students to come in for interviews. They talked about being bullied at school and on social media because of their gender identity. And Marcus broke down and, you know, he was a senior. Well, he had just graduated and he wasn't crying for himself. He said, I'm just worried about the LGBTQ students that aren't graduating, that are left behind. He's like, I just hope someone will be there for them. The school board principal and superintendent have refused to explain to the students, the faculty, or the community exactly why they shut down the Viking Saga newspaper. We asked several members of the school board, the principal, and the superintendent of the district the same thing, and all our phone messages and emails went unanswered. Your lack of transparency is causing mistrust, and it leads and encourages negative speculation. This is Gary Rayberg, a former journalism teacher at Northwest High School. He was one of several former staff members and alumni who defended the Viking saga at a recent school board meeting. And this I hate saying the most. I've always been proud of saying that I taught at Northwest High School. I'm less proud of that now. Northwest Public School Board Vice President Zach Mader told the Grand Island Independent that there had been, quote, talks of doing away with the paper if we were not going to be able to control content that we saw as inappropriate. There were students who had a problem with the paper, too, though. A school staff member told NPR that after the final issue came out featuring those three LGBTQ articles, some students made public comments in class, saying they wanted to take it home and burn it. The same staff member told us the decision to close the paper violates the rights of queer students and makes them even more vulnerable to bullying. The staff member didn't want to reveal their name for fear of retribution from the school district. Across the country, school officials have a lot of discretion over what can and can't be published in a school paper. My name is Mike Heaston. I am senior legal counsel for the Student Press Law Center. 
uh, the law uh, was was pretty clear that that um, dating back to a 1969 case called Tinker that said that as long as the speech didn't result in a serious disruption of normal school activity, so as long as it was lawful, as long as it was peaceful, uh, that was pretty much where the bar was. But 1988, that changed, and the Supreme Court said that school officials could censor school-sponsored student newspapers uh, where they had a reasonable educational justification. Reasonable educational justification is pretty vague. The Student Press Law Center, where Haystand works, is a national student press advocacy group. And he told me they have seen a roughly 50% increase in the number of calls to their hotline from last year over LGBTQ censorship issues, especially when it comes to how students identify themselves in high school newspapers and yearbooks. We are seeing these sorts of things. I mean, I know advisors. Um, we work with a lot of you know student journalism teachers who advise student newspapers and uh, other student media, and they're terrified. I mean, they don't know what some of these laws they're telling them. You know, they can't talk about you know certain topics, um, and very often they're the topics that student journalists are you know putting on their front page because they're the things that make news. Student papers are being censored at the same time that school districts around the country are banning books that center LGBTQ people and their experiences. And teachers are being limited in how they can talk about gender and sexuality in the classroom. So where does all this leave the journalism students at Northwest High School in Grand Island, Nebraska? They're in a holding pattern right now. A new nonprofit called We Will Press organized itself after the student paper was closed. They're offering journalism mentoring services to local students. Meanwhile, the state ACLU sent a letter to the school district in Grand Island demanding that they reinstate the paper and affirm their commitment to protecting LGBTQ students at their schools. Women who survived abuse inside federal prison want their freedom. Advocates for survivors are calling for early release. The issue is part of a hearing today before the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Here's NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Mistreatment of women inside the federal prison in Dublin, California, has been an open secret. It took years before prosecutors charged five people, including the warden and a chaplain, with crimes. I personally have spoken with over three dozen um, people who were sexually abused in various ways. Susan Beatty is an attorney in Oakland, California, who represents survivors from the prison now known for its notorious rape club. Beatty says many of the women were especially vulnerable. We've heard from a, a lot of survivors that staff intentionally targeted non-citizen women for abuse because of their added vulnerability. I've heard so many stories about staff saying to people, I've looked in your file, I know you have an immigration hold, I know that once your sentence is up, you're going to be deported and you're not going to be a problem for me. Beatty's working with a half dozen women on request that they be freed through a program known as Compassionate Release. That program allows prisoners to ask for early release because they face extraordinary or compelling circumstances. It used to be that was up to the Bureau of Prisons to decide, but the prisons hardly ever grant anyone compassionate release, even people with terminal illness. So four years ago, Congress gave prisoners the option of asking a federal judge. Kevin Ring advocates for people in prison and their families. We believe that judges across the country should have as much discretion as BOP does to decide what's an extraordinary and compelling circumstance. Courts have interpreted the issue differently, and the Supreme Court declined to weigh in, so it's up to the U.S. Sentencing Commission to make the final call. Judge Carlton Reeves is chairman of the panel. The uh, compassionate release is, is probably the most important priority that we have. 
The Justice Department agrees the panel should decide what counts as a compelling reason for early release, but DOJ hasn't yet proposed any boundaries. Some prosecutors worry compassionate release could make it more difficult for women who agree to testify against their abusers, because defense lawyers could call that a benefit and use it against them in cross-examination. DOJ is also calling on the sentencing panel to toughen punishments for prison workers who sexually abuse people in their custody. Advocate Kevin Ring wants the Justice Department to step up and do more for survivors. They were not sentenced to be raped in prison. And not only were they raped, they turned around at great cost and cooperated with the investigation of this warden and this chaplain. And you're going to say we have no power to give them relief, that they're supposed to heal inside a prison? Whatever the Sentencing Commission decides, Ring says it needs to leave room for extraordinary circumstances. We've had a global pandemic. We've had this rape club in Dublin. Like, these are things that they did not foresee coming, and they're not ready to handle. Mary Crawleary is an associate dean at the Catholic University School of Law. What the victim community is trying to underscore is that compassionate release is a very narrow mechanism created to respond to a very narrow situation, and it should retain that identity. Crawleary leads a victim advisory group for the Sentencing Commission. It is not the mechanism to address broader issues with regard to prison conditions. She says all victims deserve protection, but that it's up to Congress to stretch the definition of compassionate release beyond its narrow boundaries. The Sentencing Commission's expected to issue its plan on compassionate release early next year. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Chinese stocks have slumped after last week's Communist Party meeting in which Xi Jinping was granted a historic third term. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett, Bill Irwin's deeply funny show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. What's going on with Britain's Conservative Party and with the nation they've been elected to lead? Hasta la vista, baby! I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Some mistakes were made, and I have been elected to fix them. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A heads up for weekend tea riders. Shuttle buses will replace red line trains between Ashmont and Broadway tomorrow and Sunday. On the plus side, the D branch of the Green Line is scheduled to reopen tomorrow, two days ahead of schedule. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 54. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 37. Tomorrow, clear skies and a high near 60. Sunny on Sunday with a high near 63. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, 
providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. And from Paychex, the Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Chinese leader Xi Jinping orchestrated exactly the outcome he intended at last week's Communist Party Congress. He was confirmed for a third term in office. Yet, as we've been reporting, investors were unimpressed and Chinese stocks fell. NPR's John Ruich has been asking what unsettles people in business. For clues about why investor sentiment has soured in China, look no further than the central city of Wuhan, where the COVID-19 pandemic got its start nearly three years ago. The streets are really empty today. The situation in Wuhan is getting worse. Rong Rabala runs a company that imports French wine and a wine bar. This week she's getting nervous, though. The city's been reporting a couple dozen COVID cases each day, and some parts of town are already sealed off thanks to the zero COVID policy. The whole city may be locked down tomorrow or the day after. So I'm just doing the deliveries myself immediately on the same day the orders come in. Lockdowns have been unrelenting in China, and they're taking a toll on businesses like Rabala's across the country. Her sales are already down 40 to 50 percent this year. My wine bar is closed already. I'm not allowed to open it. So if I can't do delivery, I'll have a big problem. Zero COVID is just one of many policies prompting investors and businesses to rethink their plans in China. There's also the crackdown on Internet firms, a wobbly real estate market, and a growing focus in policy pronouncements on equality that has put some of the country's wealthy on edge. All are seen as having one thing in common, according to Christopher Better, a political economy expert at the research firm GavCal Dragonomics in Hong Kong. They're driven by Xi Jinping, now China's unrivaled leader. Many of his core policies that he's promoted are just, they're clearly negative for markets. There's just no escaping that. The leadership lineup announced last weekend was seen to be short on people with economic reformist credentials and long on Xi loyalists. The outcome clearly, from a market perspective, meant just less scope for anything that opposes Xi's convictions on economic policy. But Chinese markets were falling and investor sentiment was already wavering before the party congress. A survey published this week by the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai highlights some of the reasons. Sean Stein is chairman of AmCham Shanghai. If we look at the level of optimism, it's the lowest level we have on record. Lockdowns and COVID policies are a big part of it, he says. There's also less transparency now and more regulatory hurdles. On top of it all is the growing antagonism between the United States and China. I think is technological competition, other aspects of economic competition between the United States and China continue to increase. It's going to become more difficult for many of our companies to operate and more costly to comply. And that reality has been sinking in. Only 30 percent of the companies AmCham surveyed are increasing investment in China this year. One in six companies said they're considering moving some or all of their operations elsewhere. Alicia Garcia Herrero is chief economist for Asia Pacific at the French bank Natixis. She says she was kind of amused by the market reaction to the leadership lineup this week because, in her view, it almost doesn't matter which bureaucrats Xi Jinping surrounds himself with at this point. 
China's economy is decelerating rapidly. I mean, no Superman team, okay, can stop this. She says that's because of structural problems. A shrinking and aging population, an oversupply of infrastructure and capacity, high debt, and falling return on investment. And those things, she says, are like forces of gravity, hard to overcome. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. Today's StoryCorps comes from the Hawaiian island of Molokai. It was once the site of America's largest leprosy colony, known as Kalapapa. About 8,000 people from across the U.S. were quarantined there. For centuries, leprosy was a misunderstood disease. Many believed wrongly that you could catch it from a handshake. Thousands with the disease were taken from their families and exiled to leprosy colonies in the U.S. Doug Carrillo and Linda May Lovey Lovey came to StoryCorps to talk about how their lives were affected by leprosy. Kalopapa is at the bottom of this huge mountain. There's no roads, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. Nobody can go there. And our dad was sick for six years in Kalapapa, and we knew that he got married to some woman, but he got cured. So he came back home and he just said, you have a sister, but she's been adopted. She was given away. I was that child that dad was talking about. You know, I knew I had a sister, uh, half-sister, but there's no way of finding out how to trace you because they never had records. My mom had leprosy, and as soon as she delivered me, the nurse picked me up and put me in another room, and there was windows that my mom could see but she never had the opportunity to touch me. Finding you took 55 years. Exactly. But uh, when I first seen your face, mm-hmm. I remember. I said, she looked just like that. <laughs> so I knew you were my sister. You just ran to me and gave me the most biggest hug I ever had. We've been looking for you for such a long time. So when we finally met, There was relief in my heart. Uh I've known you for almost 20 years, brother. And just feeling that love, I can carry you with me for the rest of my life. That was Doug Carrillo and Linda May Lovey Lovey. Today, leprosy is called Hansen's disease and is now curable. Nine former patients remain at Kalapapa, all in their 80s and 90s. They still call the community home. This conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. More at morganstanley.com.
This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, protests sparked by the deaths of Masa Amini continue to grow in Iran. Amini died after being detained by that country's morality police. It's 829. Coming November 15th, the WBUR City Space, a conversation with journalists Margaret Sullivan and Eileen McNamara. They'll be talking about the battles they fought against sexism throughout their careers. It's part of our Phenomenal Women series. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, une.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. After months of back and forth, Elon Musk now owns Twitter. The billionaire completed his purchase of the social media company ahead of today's deadline set by a judge in Delaware. Musk has already fired several top executives, including Twitter's CEO and its chief financial officer. Musk has said he intends to shrink the workforce to make the company more profitable. Claire Diaz-Ortiz used to work at Twitter. She's concerned Musk will remove some of the content restrictions now in place. Without guardrails on a platform like like Twitter or really anywhere on social media, you end up with hate, misogyny, conspiracy theories, um, and that's not positive for anyone. Musk paid $44 billion for Twitter. Game one of baseball's World Series is tonight in Houston, where the Astros host the Philadelphia Phillies. NPR's Dave Mistich says ahead of the first pitch, Houston's manager is expressing disappointment about the makeup of this year's World Series rosters. Barring some unexpected changes in the Astros or Phillies rosters, this year's Fall Classic will be the first time since 1950 that an American-born black player won't be on the field for a World Series. Astros manager Dusty Baker, who is black, said it's a sad development, but offered hope that black representation in the game will turn around. This is NPR News. From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Monday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments over Harvard's consideration of an applicant's race in its admissions decisions. WBR's Max Larkins reports that dozens of Harvard students are headed to Washington to show their support for that policy. Since 2018, Harvard has twice persuaded judges that its consideration of race in admissions is limited and not discriminatory. But legal experts expect that winning streak to end before the conservative Supreme Court, which could overturn the policy. Harvard sophomore Muskan Arshad says she knows that race-conscious admissions may be doomed, but she's still determined to make her voice heard in Washington. You know, we are given these tools and these systems that we work with, and we have to work within them. As scary and as sad as it might seem like, we just have to keep working. I don't think there is a choice. Over 100 Harvard students will attend the two-day rally. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Work is underway on a major expansion of Mass General Hospital. The project will include 500 inpatient rooms and house cancer and heart treatment centers. The new facilities are scheduled to open in stages between 2027 and 2030. 
The president of Montserrat College of Art in Beverly is stepping down. Kurt T. Steinberg will become chief operating officer of the Peabody Essex Museum in January. He joined, he joined Montserrat back in 2018. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? The Bruins have now won seven of their first eight games. They beat the Detroit Red Rings 5-1 to one last night at the Garden. The Bees will try to stay hot tonight as they visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Celtics are back home tonight to host the Cleveland Cavaliers, and Sunday the Patriots will visit the New York Jets. Head coach Bill Belichick confirmed yesterday that Mac Jones will get the start at quarterback. In your forecast, we end the week today with a mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy with temperatures in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, sunny and right around 60. Sunny and low 60s on Sunday. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at YourPartTimeController.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeet. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. What is happening in Iran right now is historic. 40 days of public demonstrations, women marching in the streets without their headscarves, demanding a change to the regime's repressive rules. The demonstration started after 22-year-old Masa Mini died in police custody. Morality police, you may recall, accused her of dressing inappropriately somehow. But the protests have spread beyond women's rights, with social media posts showing people chanting things like, death to the dictator, a line directed at the cleric who holds ultimate power. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been following all this from the beginning and joins us this morning from Istanbul. Hey, Peter. Hi, Rachel. It's hard to get verifiable reporting from on the ground in Iran, but do you get the sense that the protests are growing? Well, there's certainly no sign of them dying down or being quelled by the security forces. Their efforts to suppress the unrest are increasing, although we haven't seen the type of all-out reaction that some hardliners are demanding. The protesters, meanwhile, are finding more symbols to rally around as more people are killed in the anti-government demonstrations. One is 17-year-old Nika Shakarami, who was killed during a street protest in Tehran. Videos posted online showed riot police opening fire on mourners at the cemetery where she's buried. Uh, Shakarami's mother began reading a eulogy for her daughter, uh, but was interrupted. Here's a bit of what she said. Now she's saying, quote, My dear child, during your short lifetime of 17 years, I watched you growing up. You grew up so fast, and you witnessed quite a lot. And then mourners started to chant, quote, Khamenei is a killer. His leadership is annulled. Uh, that's a reference to Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, whose leadership continues to be challenged in protests across Iran. I understand the regime has also tried to organize counter-demonstrations. Is that working? 
Well, they have organized some counter demonstrations, yes, uh, and they have produced large crowds in some cases, although there also have been reports of people saying they felt compelled to go. They worried about things like repercussions at work if they didn't show up. So as Steve noted, I mean, this all started after Masa Amini was detained and then died in police custody, and it was this rallying cry for, for women to be able to take off their hijab, to demand better human rights, but it has expanded. I mean, now there are all these calls for the end of the regime. Has this become existential for Iran's leaders? It is a very serious challenge uh, to a government that many analysts have said has one overarching priority, and that's to stay in power. Much of Iran's wealth has for decades been channeled into the country's intelligence apparatus, its military, various security forces, including the morality police. They're the ones who arrested Masa Amini for wearing her hijab, by the way, in exactly the same way thousands of women in Tehran do every day, with more hair showing than strict Islamic dress codes for women permit. So what about the international community's response, Peter? I mean, what are Iranians saying about that? Well, as has happened in past uprisings, uh, there's a feeling of dismay about what's seen as a completely inadequate response. More sanctions have been imposed, but Iran's hardliners point out their countries carried on under sanctions for decades and can continue to do so. So not for the first time, Iranian protesters uh, out on the streets uh, say they feel largely abandoned by the West. NPR's Peter Kenyon, we appreciate your reporting. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Rachel. A single election could decide control of the U.S. Senate. It is the election of a senator in Pennsylvania. The campaign there has turned on personalities, the candidate who had a stroke against the TV host who lived out of state. But the candidates have also had to address a big issue, one that touches on far more than the Senate. It involves climate change, the environment, and the economy. It's the debate over fracking, a drilling technique used to bring up oil and gas. Both candidates criticized fracking, yet both say they support it. Their contradictory statements reflect the electorate. Here's Reed Frazier of the Allegheny Front. As a columnist, Dr. Mehmet Oz once called for a pause on fracking pending the results of a public health study. But in this week's debate, he gushed about the gas industry's economic potential. Fracking has been demonstrated. It's a very old technology to be safe. Uh, it is a lifeline for this commonwealth to be able to build wealth. And before new state rules were put in place in 2016, John Fetterman wanted a moratorium on fracking. But at Tuesday's debate... I've always supported fracking. And I always believe that independence with our energy is, is critical and we can't be held, you know, you know, ransom to somebody like Russia. The hard to pin down views of both Fetterman and Oz on fracking reflect voters' own views on the issue, says Chris Borick, director of the Institute of Public Opinion at Muhlenberg College. He says most Pennsylvania voters don't want to ban fracking. On the other hand, Pennsylvanians have been really fairly consistent in wanting fracking to be monitored, regulated, taxed in ways uh, that the state often has not. Boric says fracking's often discussed during campaigns, but it's never a top issue for the electorate, like the economy or abortion are this year. Burwood Yost, a pollster at Franklin and Marshall College, says the issue is more tricky for Democrats like Fetterman. Many of their voters worry about fracking's potential for pollution. But he says Fetterman's also trying to win back voters the Democratic Party has been losing for years. There are sizable numbers of, of particularly white working class voters who feel strongly that fracking is um, 
that kind of energy development is good for the economy. Don Furco is one of the voters Fetterman is trying to court. He's head of a local steelworkers union at a U.S. steel plant near Pittsburgh. Many workers at his plant, at least the vocal ones, are voting for Oz over issues like guns and abortion. But he is voting for Fetterman because he sees him as on the side of workers like those at his mill. I think his, if he had to straddle the fence, that his, you know, the, the foot that he's stepping with is going to be the one that's uh, with jobs. Outside a shopping plaza in the Pittsburgh suburb of West Mifflin, Carol Martin and her husband John, both 82, say they support fracking. It creates a lot of jobs Yeah, and keeps people working. And keeps the price of everything down. While John says he's voting for Oz, Carol's undecided. Her top issues are the economy and the war in Ukraine. Fetterman's changing views on fracking don't bother her much. He's for it now, that's fine. If he was against it then, well, he changed his mind. A lot of them changed their mind on a lot of things. A few stores over, Andrea Webb of Pittsburgh says she's against fracking because of the potential environmental impacts. Like my god-granddaughter tells me, save the planet, Nana, save the planet, okay? And fracking is very harmful, especially to um, people's water supply, underground water. Even though Fetterman supports fracking, she'll still vote for him because she likes his stands on other issues like the economy. She thinks the government should be doing more to help people with low incomes. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, we could make history in Massachusetts in these upcoming midterm elections. Maura Healy is favored to become the state's first female governor, and she's part of a wave of women candidates who are predicted to win races for statewide office. In your forecast, we'll have a mostly sunny Friday in the low 50s today. Tonight, it falls into the 30s, then sunny and low 60s both days this weekend. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Boston Ballet's As Anticipated with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education, preschool to grade 12. Sign up for open house events at gisbos.org. Now in business news, a Cambridge-based drug company will not start a clinical trial for treatment of a rare genetic eye disease this year. Alnylam Pharmaceuticals cites President Biden's new drug pricing law as the reason for stopping. It says the law could limit what the company could charge for the medication. Alnylam and other drug companies say they're worried the law could deter investments in new medicines. It hasn't announced when or if it will start the clinical trial. Worcester is receiving nearly $2 million from the state to redevelop a former industrial site. City officials tell the Worcester Business Journal they're planning to build manufacturing space at the area that was formerly home to the San Goban factory. It's 844. 
Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This fall's election is shaping up to be a big day for women candidates in Massachusetts. In all, seven women from the two major parties are pursuing statewide office, including Maura Healy, who's running for governor. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Democratic women are expected to do particularly well in deep blue Massachusetts. There could be a lot of firsts for Massachusetts women come Election Day. Maura Healey is favored to become the state's first female governor and first openly gay chief executive of the Commonwealth. She's running with Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll on the state's first all-female ticket. They're part of a wave of women candidates that Jesse Mermel says will send an important message. First of all, when women run, women win, right? We've known that for years. Mermel used to head up the Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus, which works to increase the number of women elected to public office. Recent research does show that women win elections at higher rates than men. This year, Democratic women have a good chance of winning five of the state's six constitutional offices. Besides governor and lieutenant governor, Andrea Campbell is leading in the race for attorney general. Diana DiZaglio is ahead in the race for state auditor. And Deb Goldberg only faces a third-party candidate in her race for state treasurer. The only man expected to win statewide office this year is William Galvin, another Democrat who's seeking an eighth term as Secretary of the Commonwealth. Mermel calls this a banner year for women in a state in which only nine women have served in constitutional offices over the past 242 years. And all of them were white women. And here we are about to have nearly every statewide office in the Commonwealth held by a woman. Evelyn Murphy says it's about time. Murphy was elected lieutenant governor in 1986, the first woman in state history to hold a constitutional office. She said back then, despite having a Ph.D. and serving as a cabinet secretary, she faced skepticism about whether she was up to the job. The line would be, well, we guys haven't done such a great job, so let's see what you girls can do. The skepticism was, well, she's nice and she's smart enough, but is she tough enough? Nobody's raising that nowadays about these women. Murphy says that represents real change. Elizabeth Warren, the first and only woman from Massachusetts elected to the U.S. Senate, agrees. She also understands the frustration that it's taken this long for so many women to break through the state's political glass ceiling. But can we just take a deep breath and acknowledge how much the conversation has changed in 10 years? Warren says when she launched her first campaign for the Senate more than a decade ago, that conversation went something like this. I got about a zillion phone calls where people said, oh, you should run. You have some great ideas. Of course, you're going to lose. What mattered is that you were a woman and you could not win. At least we're not having that conversation today. Warren says electing women isn't only about representation. It's also about public policy because she says women are apt to promote issues like pay equity, child care and abortion rights. Jane Swift agrees. She's a former Republican lieutenant governor who served as acting governor for two years when Governor Paul Cellucci became ambassador to Canada. 
When Swift took over, she had a new baby and was surprised to learn that union contracts for state employees provided no help with things like child care or flex time. She got involved with negotiations to make sure they did. I was astounded and frankly dismayed. And so having someone who had just gone through a high profile pregnancy, you know, I was acutely aware of the importance of that issue. And so we were able to get that done. If the polls are correct, Jaquetta Van Zant says the election will not only be a breakthrough for women, but also for women of color. Van Sant, who hosts the podcast Politics and Prosecco, points to Andrea Campbell, who grew up in Mattapan and could become the state's first black attorney general. You have Kim Driscoll, whose mother is from Trinidad, which is amazing. Like, you don't see that often. It's going to be the most diverse pool of thought, and that will play a part in how they govern. So I think this is a big deal. Despite what could be a big step forward for women in Massachusetts politics, there's more work to do, according to Jesse Mermel. She says women still represent only about a quarter of Massachusetts state legislators and are still underrepresented in local elections, which provide an important pipeline to higher office. What happens on November 8th cannot be the end of this story. It has to be consistent wins over years and years and years and years for women to really achieve equity. But Mermel says if women in Massachusetts do have a big night on November 8th, their victories will come a century after another important milestone. When Susan Fitzgerald, a Democrat from Jamaica Plain, and Sylvia Donaldson, a Republican from Brockton, became the first women elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. This November, a century on, women have a good chance to make history again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. For more on the big races here in Massachusetts, including a comprehensive breakdown of the ballot questions, visit WBUR.org slash voter guide. Coming up, college enrollment declined yet again this fall. Experts say more potential students are choosing to get jobs. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Celeste Headley is here to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Rupa. And on this Friday, we have a lot to update people on. We'll have our politics roundtable, of course, but also we'll be talking about the Twitter deal. Elon Musk is now the owner of Twitter and has immediately started firing people. Um, We're also going to talk about the end of the Universal Free Lunch Program and what kind of effect that is having on parents and students all around the nation. An update on uh, uh, Superstorm Superstorm Sandy, say that 10 times fast, (laughs) Um, 10 years since it happened. And we're going to talk to the composer of a new opera who, along with Rhiannon Giddens, um, is telling the story of the the, uh, an enslaved man who wrote the only autobiography of an enslaved person in Arabic. So great show today. Yeah, sounds like. Thanks, Celeste. Thank you. Uh, happy Friday, by the way. You too. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Actor Michael Imperioli is best known for his role as Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos, but he's ready to build a new HBO legacy with a lead role in The White Lotus. Look, it's very hard to work as an actor, period. And it's even harder to create a character that people 
remember you for. Imperioli's return to the spotlight this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. The mighty A's of tech, Apple, seems more resilient than Amazon. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. I'm David Brancaccio coming to you this week from Houston. But first, Apple and Amazon have issued mixed profit reports. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is here now to unpack what we're learning from these two heavyweights of tech. Nancy, let us start with Apple. Some of its sales look strong. Yeah, and back to school shoppers snapped up Macs this fall, David. Um, Apple launched a new MacBook Air, and that helped to boost sales. And Apple says overall revenue was up 8% from the same time last year. All right, but other parts of Apple didn't do so well? Yes, sales of iPhones uh, were below expectations, and growth in Apple's services business is way down. Uh, That includes things like Apple TV and Apple Music. Uh, CEO Tim Cook also told CNBC that the strong dollar hurt Apple's overseas earnings. Yeah, makes things more expensive. And Amazon, I'm looking at the stock this morning, down and down. Yeah, Amazon reported revenue of just more than $127 billion. Amazon says net sales increased 19% compared to the same time last year, but that was still a bit below analysts' expectations. And part of the problem here is people are going back to shopping in stores. In stores. How is Amazon's remote computer services, its cloud division, doing? It's still expanding, but much less than usual. Uh, Amazon says some customers are moving their cloud storage to lower-priced options, and that affects the bottom line. Nancy, thank you. Let's do the numbers. Amazon stock is down about 14% in pre-market trading now, but Apple is up three-tenths percent. More broadly, NASDAQ futures are down eight-tenths of a percent. Dow futures are up 52 points, about two-tenths percent. The Federal Reserve's preferred gauge of inflation, it's called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, is just in. It's holding steady with prices running at about 6.2 percent annual rate in September increases. The Fed is raising interest rates on Wednesday. Expect a sharp three-quarters of a percentage point increase then, so enjoy the World Series while you can. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by ReliaQuest, protecting the largest companies against cyber attacks. ReliaQuest combines OpenXDR technology with security expertise to make security possible. ReliaQuest.com. Let's take the economic pulse this time from the perspective of higher ed. We're coming to you from Houston this week, just a few days after the investiture ceremony for the new president of Rice University, a few minutes from here. Reginald DeRoche had been provost at Rice, a position you might call in the corporate world chief operating officer. His academic work is in structural engineering. He was born in Haiti and was the first in his family to get a college degree. Professor DeRoche, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. First, it was for higher ed, COVID, then a strong job market and college enrollment nationally, much lower than it was before pandemic. Are you feeling increased competition for fewer students at this institution? Not so much. I mean, our enrollments are are robust. We received something like 33,000 applicants for a class of 1,200. Fortunately, we're we're good on enrollments. Rice is, you know, very well sought after university. We're very fortunate from that perspective. We're seeing challenges in terms of recruiting talent. 
staff and, and faculty and then the changing workforce impacts us also because we're in the city of Houston where we're competing for, for talent with everybody, not just other universities, but all these major companies. So it's a challenge for us too. It's become, I think, increasingly accepted in, I don't know, polite company to say that a college education isn't the right choice for everyone. Given the costs of education for students, what are your thoughts on this notion of it's not right for everyone or thought of differently? What is the case for, in fact, spending the money to get the education? No, it's certainly not the case for everybody to get to spend the money. We're very fortunate in that we really believe at Rice that if you have the aptitude and the desire to study at a place like Rice, we have a very aggressive financial aid package to allow you to come to a place like Rice. Not everybody has to come to Rice. There are many other opportunities, including community college. And we work closely with community colleges to find mechanisms for them to then come to a four-year institution, whether it's Rice or one of the other ones. Parents are asking tougher questions, though, about the costs. I mean, I know that you've been thinking about the case you know, if you're considering higher ed and that investment, share with us some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, the ROI is something that increasingly parents are looking at. And so we want to make sure that we're providing the type of education where students, when they leave this university, they'll get a good job. Not only do we provide the type of education to prepare them, but we really focus on things we do outside the classroom that really prepare the students to go out and work knowing that in five years what they're doing now will be very different. So they need to get the type of education that will prepare them to adapt and change over their careers. And I think we do that well. As provost, I think it was, you established the university's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. What did you learn from that process that might be useful for other organizations engaging these issues? So a couple of things. It has to come from the top in many ways. It has to be part of the culture. The other thing I would say, it's not just about the numbers, right? It's not just about being diverse and having X percent of students or X percent of faculty or graduate students. It's about having a sense of being inclusive, students feeling like they belong there. And part of that is making sure they have people in the classroom that look like them. So one of the things we really focused on, in addition to having diverse students at the graduate and undergraduate level, is trying to diversify the faculty, which is one of the biggest challenges many universities have. But boy, if when students see people in the classroom that looks like them, it has a huge impact on persistence and their sense of belonging. So you can do that if you're intentional about it and really work at the department level. You work at all levels to make sure that people know it's just part of what we do as a university. Reginald Desroches, new president of Rice University, congratulations on your investiture. Thank you very much. We are also following Elon Musk coming in as the new owner of Twitter. Happened last night already. He's fired Twitter's CEO and chief financial officer. More on that in the Marketplace Morning Report podcast. If you miss our coverage on the air today, Twitter's stock is up about three-tenths of a percent in pre-market trading. Special thanks to Houston Public Media for all the support, especially General Manager Lisa Shoemate, Station Manager Joshua Adams, and Shannon Harrison with production operations this week from Texas. I'm David Rancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have another sunny day today, but it'll be cooler than yesterday, only in the low 50s. Tonight we'll get down into the 30s. Tomorrow, upper 50s and sunny again. Sunny on Sunday, too, and low 60s. A chance of rain on Halloween. 
It's 45 degrees in Boston. We're at 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.